Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Simply Amazing. Tim Ryder from the Apple. Guys, we are, well, we're back here again. Uh, last time we spoke, Francisco Lindor was waiting for his extension. Opening day was on Thursday. Uh, since then, Lindor's got his bag. Uh, the Nats got COVID. And uh, the wait for opening day is now over. We're hearing this on, uh, on Monday morning. The Mets kick things off on Friday night in Philadelphia. Uh, excuse me, Monday night in Philadelphia. Uh, I'm here with a good buddy from, from social media, a guy I kick it with online a little bit. Uh, you guys know him as Giraffe Neck Mark. You know him from YouTube, Twitter. You know him. He, I know he does a little gaming and stuff. We'll get into that. Our buddy, Mark Luino. Mark, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on, Tim. Always excited to talk Mets, get more involved in the Mets community and happy to be on the podcast. Awesome, man. Uh, you know, I guess the excitement's running a little wild. Opening day's finally, uh, finally upon us. You have uh, high expectations for this team or what? Yeah, I think the expectations for the Mets, I mean, you're talking to the guy who picks them to win the World Series pretty much every single year for his videos. And the Mets team has only gotten better, I feel like, this season from, you know, the past few. So the expectations are high. I didn't pick them to win the World Series this year just because I'm kind of playing the non-jinx card this year. I'm trying to see how that goes for me. But this team, I mean, has contender written all over it right now. Oh, and yeah, they, they have all the pieces together. They finally have the depth together. Um Exciting times. Now, you got a new Mets podcast that just came out with our buddy James Shiano, right? Yes. Yeah. Me and James are doing the uh, Mets Up podcast, and it's it's a lot of fun. It's my first time really getting into the podcasting game, and I've enjoyed it because it's, it's cool to kind of build something up from scratch again, which I haven't been able to do in quite some time. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's cool. You kind of get your own little platform, your own little forum to kind of, you know, just share your thoughts and I, I know I'm enjoying it. Uh, and we certainly haven't had much, uh, a lack for uh, a lack of content this off season. It seems like every other day there's something going on, whether it's positive or negative, but uh, really in the last, you know, just few days with the whole Lindor situation, uh, you know, you have to imagine Michael Conforto is next on that list. He's kind of put those talks aside. He said that I yeah, made it actually pretty clear on Sunday that, his focus is very much on the field. Um, do you think an extension could happen before he hits free agency with Boris? It might be tough. Yeah. I think the fact that like Boris is his agent and that Conforto has come out and said, basically he's focused on the season. Now I don't think he's against talking to it, but I think it's just going to be really tough and something that the Mets aren't probably going to really get too involved in just yet. But, you know, we obviously want Conforto back. He's one of our guys. He's been there from the start, and he's he's such a great player. I think that there's a world where they can definitely get this deal done. Likely during the season, though, that's going to be tough. Yeah, especially if he's, he's made it clear that, you know, his focus lies in one place. Um, it, it, you have to imagine the ball kind of lies in his court. If he were to say, yep, yeah, let's do this, you know, I don't think there's any question. Mets say, okay, how much? <laughs> yeah. and, and get it done. But, uh you know, if there's a window for it to happen, great. Um, I don't think it's it's out of the realm of possibility that it happens as the season goes on. But again, I think um, as far as, you know, the relevance, I think it'll be backburnered. And if it gets done, it gets done. And, you know, it's great for, the, for uh, someone in the Mets position. But, uh, you know, you can't blame Conforto for possibly going out there and, uh, you know, testing his value on the open market. Oh, 100%. And I think he even made a comment today about, or Sunday, about the um, how the team's going to look a lot different, he thinks, over the next few years. And I don't think that's, you know, a sign of him saying he's going to leave or that, you know, some guys are going to step out. But he also knows that, like, the kind of money that the Mets have now and that they're willing to spend and willing to get really good and do whatever it takes to win, I think it's an interesting comment from him just because I think he knows that if he has a good year, he's going to get paid and the Mets will be looking to do that, hopefully. Yeah, and especially with so many things left on the Mets docket, um, you have Syndergaard coming up. You're going to have Stroman coming off the books this year. Uh, you know, you're going to have holes to fill. And if you're committing money to Conforto, if you're going out and uh, I know uh, Tim Healy of Newsday spoke with Sandy Alderson last week, and they said that 
I don't want to quote it, but paraphrasing, like they have money to spend. And, and you know, I, I completely agree. Things can look very different because they can't bring everybody back and they're going to have to have, uh, you know, at least at least, uh, you know, significant turnover to kind of make everything continue rolling along. I do think they're in a good position with the core, though. But eventually you're going to have to kind of tackle those uh, those issues too, the McNeils and the Alonzos and such. Yeah. I mean, like we have really good problems. I feel like that's kind of been our whole theme this year is like a lot of great problems. At first it was Lindor. Now it's the Conforto extension. Now it's like, okay, when Syndergaard comes back, what does the rotation look like? Everything that we're talking about with the Mets are problems that the old Mets and the old regime, we would have wished for this. And now we're getting it. And it's like, this is fantastic. I mean, we're talking about signing half a billion dollar worth of players here in Lindor and Conforto. That's not a conversation I thought we'd ever have. Right, right. This was a foregone conclusion if this was happening two years ago that, oh, yeah, these guys are just gone and maybe we'll trade them at the deadline and get some good pieces back. Like the whole um, it's a whole new paint job on things. And yeah, it's it's um, it's exciting times. It's almost a, it's a, it's unfamiliar to an extent. It's very, um, you know, it's fun. But uh, yeah, a lot on the table. You have DeGrom. I know Andy Martino from SNY mentioned that the Mets and DeGrom had kind of talked about an extension uh very, very preliminary uh, talks. I guess, you know, likely they're trying to cut off that 2022 opt-out, which is a good move. But again, it just kind of speaks to the rest of the uh, the remaining items on the docket. Yeah, we have so many players that can become available or hit free agency or even, you know, guys that will hit the market from other teams that it gives us a lot of flexibility with being one of the teams that are going to be spenders. But yeah, I mean, if if we're really prioritizing things, it's goes Conforto. And I, I might even put the DeGrom thing ahead of it because, I think he probably does opt out in 2022 just because he's the best pitcher in baseball. He showed no signs of slowing down. He's going to get paid more money. Oh, sure. And he deserves it. And he's getting, I know the first two years of his deal were um, on the low end, I think 20 million a year or something like that. But now I believe this season it starts and he's making 32, 33 and one year, I think 30.5 million a year. And, uh, you know, he's made it pretty known that he'd like to remain a Met for the rest of his career. And I think the Mets are going to, uh, you know, pretty much open up the checkbook and, and, and the same thing as Conforto. Say, hey, what are you, you know, what are you looking for? Let's make it work. That type of situation. And, you know, like you said, it's all great problems to have, and especially with a roster this deep. I mean, you can kind of count on anybody. Do you have like a... a I guess a, 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 a Mets wild card. I asked Meek Phil the same question was he when he was on the show last week. Do you have somebody you think who could really uh, stand out and kind of be a, you know, a foundational pillar for this team? I think that a guy that's really going to surprise a lot of people this year and kind of surprise a lot of people last year is going to end up being Luis Guillorme. I think he's going to end up playing probably close to like 110, 120 games this year just because the positional flexibility, he has a good glove at all positions and he's starting to hit the ball really well, which is an encouraging sign. I mean, a couple of years ago, this was a guy that, you know, was a glove first infielder. And if he ever hit, that was a positive. But ever since the game against the Nationals where he hit the home run and, you know, tied it up, he's been a completely different player. I think he has an OPS like around 900 since then. And obviously that's not the kind of player he's going to end up being. He's probably more a guy that you can rely on like 750 OPS, decent average, decent on base. On base. He can play a bunch of different positions. He's going to find his way into spots and be like, kind of our utility guy that we have been using with like McNeil a little bit in the past few years, play a lot of different positions, give guys days off. I I've been hyping him up like crazy all off season. I'm so big on Luis Guillorme. Oh, same here. Uh, yeah. Anyone who listens to the show, we are, uh, we are big Guillorme fans here, but yeah, I mean, you know, the type of player he was in the minors, um, he, he's kind of, you know, and it doesn't happen very often, but he's developed into that player. He's kind of translated that game from the minors to the majors. And, um, you know, whether it's sustainable, that's another question altogether, but he, he certainly found his groove. Uh, even this spring, he looked very confident at the plate. Um, you know, his defense is just sterling. You can never go wrong there, but I think I'm right there with you. Cause if he is utilized correctly, he could be such an important part and just uh, an, an integral cog to the, to the machine. And uh, yeah, it could be huge. I'm, I'm still counting on Marcus Stroman. I think especially with Carrasco out and Syndergaard, you know, uncertain what he's going to bring when he comes back, even though he was pumping 97 in, in camp. So uh, I guess our expectations are the bar, the, the bar set a little bit higher, but I'm really counting on Marcus Stroman to kind of be that true number two behind DeGrom. I think his, his ceiling which he's, I think he's still very much in his prime and, and, and even just, you know, just finding his groove. He's always kind of adapting and stuff. I really think he could be the, uh, the really the, the, the missing link 
to um, I guess bridging the gap, I should say, from DeGrom down to the back end in like guys like Walker, guys like Peterson or Mukasey or Yamamoto, if he gets a shot, you know, again, it, it speaks again to the uh, to the depth that they've kind of assembled. Yeah, Marcus Stroman has looked incredible this spring. It felt like every single one of his starts was on TV too, which was nice because he's fooling around with like that new split change, I think, and it just looked really good. The slider had a lot of bite to it. And I mean, he's one of the most confident players in MLB. So, you know, it's never going to be a mental thing for him. He's just got to go out there and shove, which he's going to, I think this year plays with a chip on his shoulder. I mean, I love his attitude. I love his, I love his positivity. This is a guy, like you said, I think he's going to do big things this year, like especially in a contract year when a lot of people kind of had doubts about him last year from opting out and everything like not that he has something to prove because he's had a great career, but I think he wants to continue to show people how good he really is. And he probably thinks that he's not getting the respect he deserves, which is a very fair statement. Oh, I think a hundred percent. And um, yeah, I don't blame him for, for kind of going out there with that chip on his shoulder. And, you know, he's always had that chip, even with the new, the, the shoe line, the, the uh, shoe go yep. line, you know, he got dropped from Jordan and he said, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing. And, you know, it's, it's certainly picking up steam. They, they look cool. I asked him, I'm like, when do the casuals come out? He said, 2022. <laughs> okay. We'll have to check those out, but yeah, you know, um, so many different, areas you could look at the Mets and be like, wow, what an improvement from what this team was in recent years. And, you know, it's uh, they've taken a giant leap ahead. Um, I know projections kind of have the Mets pulling ahead in the East, the Braves keeping it close. Some people have the Braves in like third or fourth place, but uh, you think it's going to be a, a tight race in the National League East? Yeah, I think like I know it's only three games, but even seeing the Phillies smack around the Braves this weekend and you know me, I'm a big Phillies, our fourth place team guy. I think the National League East is going to be like even closer than we originally thought. I still have the Braves as the top team. I've been saying it all offseason until the Mets actually beat the Braves. I just can't put them ahead of them. But I do think on paper we have just as good of a team, if not better than them. So it's really not like too far off that we could finish ahead of them and be first place in the NL East. The only team that I think right now that like I don't necessarily know has a legitimate shot might be the Nationals or the Phillies, even with strong performance, you know, this weekend by the Phillies. But this division's so incredibly deep. It's going to be such a battle. It's going to come down to like depth pitching. Like it's going to probably come down to the last game of the season. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, for, for a Mets fan, it's like, Oh yeah, I hope it doesn't happen. But you know, you can always, um, yeah, like you said, you can look up and down this division and, and find bright spots. Even the Marlins. That's a, that's a nice roster. If they get hot, you know, we saw it last year, even in a short season, if they, um, if they get hot, they could certainly do some damage. The Nationals are a stacked team. Uh, Zach Wheeler looked terrific on Saturday, but so good. Besides, oh my God, so good. But besides him and Nola, you know, there's not much really to write home about about the Phillies rotation, and that could probably end up being a, a vulnerability. And yeah, they got um, you know, they're going to have competition, that's for sure. But I think we agree that Dodgers are probably still the cream of the uh, of the National League, right? Yeah, I mean, the Dodgers are just on paper, possibly one of the best teams that we've ever seen in a given year. And I'm not talking about, you know, like some of those Yankees teams that had five or six Hall of Famers on a murderer's row kind of stuff. But you're talking about, you know, based on a prior year or guys in their prime, the Dodgers with Bellinger, Betts, Muncy, Seager, Bauer, uh, Kershaw, Bueller. I mean, the, the roster's loaded. I miss some guys and they're still insanely good players. Like they just are so incredibly stacked. And over a 162 game season, after the 60 game season last year, it's really going to come down to like a lot of depth. And there probably isn't a better team in major league baseball depth wise than the Dodgers. Oh, for sure. And, and if anything, I think the Mets have kind of taken a page out of that book, just building up depth and building up versatility and, you know, get your own Chris Taylor and get your own Justin Turner or, or whatever the case may be. I mean, like you were saying, you could look at anybody on that one through eight and, and say, wow, like that's a, <laughs> that's a top flight number seven hitter or whatever the case may be. And then you turn to the rotation. It's the same deal. I mean, I think um, Urias was, uh, I hope it's, I hope I said it right. Urias or Urias, but I think it's who, yeah. Urias. I don't know. It's, it's a little difficult. I'm not sure. <laughs> I know Lu Luis Urias from uh, in Milwaukee, formerly of San Diego. He, he, I'm a fan of his and he, he does his one way. Anyway, um, he had a really nice start on Sunday and, you know, if that's your number four, I mean, forget about it. That's a, um, that's a force, but, 
you know, and you could even look to the American League and be like, wow, there's a couple of really stacked teams. I know the White Sox made a lot of moves to um, to kind of really make a push in a year that the Indians weren't going to have the best chance at the uh, at the AL Central. And uh, I guess the Twins might be considered their competition, but you know, they've already dealt with some injuries, but they've already had some uh, next man up situations kind of come to fruition. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big fan of the White Sox this year. I just like, I love everything about that team just because of how young they are. They seem to be like really good guys and like really close with each other. I was there at spring training right before COVID went down and I was in the clubhouse and I'm just seeing these guys all hanging out. Like it's a good vibe and I'm a big vibes guy. And I, you see that with the Mets, even like when the guys are getting along with each other, it makes it a lot easier to play with them that, cause you know, these guys are going to have your back. And that's just kind of the way I get the feeling with the White Sox. Plus they also just have like really good players too, which helps. Oh, sure. Luis Roberts going to be a, uh, an absolute star. I mean, uh, you have, uh, oh, geez, tip of my tongue. Lucas Giolito. I can't believe he's I so couldn't good. get it. It was always oh, so good. So that changeup is just nasty. And who's the kid going, you know, eight for his first eight? Oh, that's my guy, uh, Yerman Mercedes. Yes, he's like a 28-year-old. He's technically He was technically listed as a prospect, I believe, but I mean, 28 years old, not really much of a prospect anymore, but he's like been around the minors forever and all he's ever done is really hit, but he just doesn't have a spot for him. And luckily the White Sox called him up and he has been on fire. This is like a little bit of a meme in my like Twitter following community. And I'm so excited to see him playing well. Like this dude is so much fun to watch. Yeah, it's so cool. I was watching just clips of him on Sunday morning. It's just, wow, this guy is locked in right now. So fun. But you really get a chance to kind of like bounce around the league doing your YouTube show, right? Yeah, no, it's really cool. I don't just focus on the Mets. Obviously, you know, that's the main team I care about the most, but I get to talk about anything that's going on in baseball, which is really cool because, you know, it is my job. So when I'm home all day, not making a video, I'm pretty watching, pretty much watching baseball. So, I mean, best job in the world. I can't complain about anything. It's, it's a lot of fun. I could imagine, man. That's amazing. Um, and you're into the gaming and stuff too, right? Yeah. I, uh, I actually started out on my channel doing MLB the show videos. Cause at the time there was no real like actual baseball community community on YouTube. So I saw that there was a little bit of people playing MLB the show on there. It looked like a lot of fun. It was a gr- it's a great community still to this day. And I have a lot of friends from there, but once the game started, you know, not being as fun for me, I decided, you know, let's start talking about real major league baseball. That's always been what your goal is, is to be able to talk about actual baseball took the leap of faith and it ended up working out. Cause you know, it, luckily for me, it was the best decision I ever made with my channel. It just took off once I d- decided to drop the gaming and go right into the real stuff. But yeah, we still game, we still play. I'm excited for the new game coming out. That's cool. Yeah. I know. Uh, I don't do much. My, my, my got my daughter an Xbox. She kind of messes around with it, but, uh, I heard that MLB The Show is coming out on Xbox. So I told her, I'm like, you're going to have competition for that thing. Yes. No, MLB The Show is like, it's a fantastic game. Seriously, if you're like a very, if you're not playing competitively, trying to be the best player in the world, you can put so many hours into it and never get bored. It's it's so deep. It's it's fantastic. Oh, dude, I'm going back to like RBI Baseball 1995 and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I, I really, I'm looking forward to jumping into it. You know, I mean, especially if you liked RBI baseball, you're going to play this and be like, oh, my God, like this is this is what they look like now. And this is how much you I can control the minor league lineup like this is crazy. The depth that they have in there. Oh, yeah. No, I was watching a buddy of mine. He's does. He's big into like NHL 2020 and NHL 2021. And same thing. You're like, you know, you're drafted and you're going through your minor leagues. I'm like, oh, that looks fun. <laughs> Let me get into that. I don't have a PS4, but you know that it's coming to, uh, to Xbox. I think I might have to dive in. Yeah, no, a lot of people are super excited for it to come to Xbox because it's never been on there. So get a chance to get some new baseball fans for that, too, which is awesome for the game. Excellent. Mark, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us, man. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. I'm always excited to talk about the Mets. I mean, I could talk about them probably for 24 hours every single day. So, yeah, no problem. <laughs> thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, where can everybody find your uh, your content? Yeah, so you can find me on all social media at GiraffeNeckMark. Uh, Mark with a C, of course, because that's the only way to spell it. And you can listen to podcasts. You can search me us anywhere, Mets Up Podcast as well. We're uh, talking Mets all the time. Excellent, man. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on, and hopefully we can check back in during the season. Oh, of course. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets, man. We'll talk to you soon. All right, everybody. We're going to take a quick break here from our sponsors. We're going to be back with Devin Gordon. He's the author of So Many Ways to Lose, the amazing true story of the New York Mets, the best and worst team in sports. Excuse me. Oh, I'm sorry, buddy. The best worst team in sports got tied up at the end. But guys, 
Hold, hang tight. We're going to be right back. Guys, we are speaking with another special guest. This is really, we've been on a roll lately. Author Devin Gordon. He's the, uh, he's got a new book out. It came out March 16th through HarperCollins. It's called So Many Ways to Lose, The Amazing True Story of the New York Mets, the best worst team in sports. Um, outstanding title we're going to lead off there. And the dedication in part, of course, to Andy Chavez is just icing on the cake. This is a couple of pages in. You're already uh, looking for more. Devin, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, really, congratulations on a terrific piece of work. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. I'm a big fan of yours. Um, big fan of the blog. Um, big fan of the pod. Big fan of the Mets. Very excited to talk about this. Thank you so much. Oh, no, my pleasure. Totally. And uh, yeah, this should... Um, you know, the, the, the book, the season, it's all going to be very fun. It's all got to be very exciting on your end. And, uh, yeah, let's jump into it a little bit. So, I guess tackling the Mets as the ups and downs and the futility, it's been, uh, it's been quite a um, – let's just say it's been quite a journey. There's no short yeah. of topics on your end. Um, you kind of take the reader through everything, the, the team's inception, the rise to prominence, the darker years after Seaver left – the 80s and 90s, you have two separate chapters called Fuck the Yankees. I mean, uh, just, you know, at first glance, this is like, oh, this is going to be fun. And then you get into it and it's like, oh, well, this is great. Give us a little synopsis. Give us a little, um, a little. Sure, sure. Well, you know, this, this, this book began as an article. I'm a magazine journalist. I have been for 20 years. I worked at Newsweek for a decade. I worked at GQ as an articles editor for a decade. Magazines were my thing. Um, never planned on writing a book. Um, and this began as a magazine article about Gary, Keith and Ron um, in the New York Times about two and a half years ago. Um, and maybe some of you guys read that article. Some book editors read it and asked me if there was a way that I could turn that article into a, into a book, just something that had you know, never crossed my mind. That wasn't the goal of it. And the subtext of the article was sort of about what it is to be a Mets fan. You know, Gary, Keith and Ron are at their heart, Mets fans. They have jobs to do, but they're Mets fans. And that conflict between that love and the reality that they are obliged to confront, there's something special about that um, and unique about that. Most teams don't have that. Most teams that lose, you know, everybody loses. Everybody goes down. Everybody has heartbreaking losses, but the Mets do something. You know, we're the ones who lose because of a walk-off walk, right? We're the ones who lose because Carlos Beltran watches three straight pitches, right? That's, that's special, that's us. And it seemed like, well, I guess it began sort of with this question, which is, is this destiny? Is this in our DNA? Where does this come from? And why does it keep showing up over and over and over again? By the way, if you're hearing something in my background, that's my dog. She's also a Mets fan. All right. Hey, Pop. Yeah, she's, uh, I don't know what she thinks about what I was saying there. Maybe she's like, oh my God, you and the Mets. She's excited for the season. By the way, guys, we're, we're recording this on Wednesday, the night before opening day. Uh, you'll be hearing it on Monday morning, but um, excitement doesn't change. Unless, of course, Devin's book comes to fruition and something just terrible, awful happens. But hold on, knock on wood, that ain't going to happen. We're going to have a little fun and uh, yeah. Uh, dude, this has to be um, exciting. So please continue. I, I want to hear kind of how this all kind of came into play. Yeah. So, you know, that all came together um, into a way of looking at Mets history. Right. And answering the question sort of takes you through a prism of looking at Mets history that's entirely about this special gift for losing. I was like, could we tell an entire history of a franchise through the prism of this gift we have for losing? Does it hold up through the whole history? Does this identity keep cropping up? And if it does, why? And when you go through the Mets history, or at least if you sort of organize Mets history the way I do, um, it does sort of really work out that way. The book is effectively about 20 chapters of a way to lose. Each one describes defeat in some kind of artful, glorious, painful, hilarious, unforgettable way with the idea that, you know, almost everyone loses in the end. It is the, the human condition and it has far more emotional, colorful storytelling resonance than sort of one note winning. It's 
great to win. It makes for terrible storytelling. <laughs> well, it's all in the eye of the beholder, right? I mean, um, as a lifelong Mets fan, I happen to think that all those tough times and there's always going to be more tough times than, uh, than good ones. That's just kind of what we signed up for, whether it was we signed up or were thrown into it uh, through family ties. But, um, yeah, you know, it, it, it adds character. <laughs> it does. I mean, that's the thing about being a Mets fan versus someone, let's not name any names or name any teams, but the Mets were built without the expectation of winning. Winning is not a part of our DNA. We weren't a franchise that was expected to win from the beginning. In fact, in, you know, we had no chance to win. The Yankees, from the very beginning, were a baseball franchise put on this earth to win titles and make money. That was their purpose. That was their core functionality. It is in their DNA. And they have done a very good job of that over the course of their history. The Mets came from very different genetic code, right? We only exist because the Giants and the Dodgers, you know, thumbed at West like a bunch of goddamn hippies <laughs> with one team and that team was intolerable to most of New York. And so the Mets were an expansion franchise and they came along plucked from useless veterans, no chance prospects and their owner, the great Mrs. Joan Whitney Payson, God rest her soul, had the wisdom, the foresight to understand that the Mets had no chance to win. And not only did they have no chance to win in 1962, they probably were going to take several years to win because that's what it is to be an expansion team. And that if all they were was desperately, corrosively losing that whole time, it would be very, very bad for the franchise, potentially fatal. So they had to be fun. They had to be fun and spirited. The fact that they were losing couldn't be a big deal. It couldn't even be the purpose. It had to be something else. And so I don't think it's any wonder that that comedy, that fun, that let's just go have a good time, no matter what happens, whether it's up or down, even the ups or the downs we, we tell great stories about later, that's in our DNA. That's who we are. And I love that, like you say, it builds character. I don't, it's not just, to me, it's not just building character, it's more fun. It's really, that's you know, like on some simple elemental way, I think it's just more fun to be a Mets fan than any other team in baseball. Uh, like come at me and make a case. Oh, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I find myself in agreement with you. I think that um, all, all the stuff that we put up with as Mets fans whether that be on-field performance, whether that be performance in the penthouse, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, it, it makes the good times that much sweeter. Um, like, look at 2006. Like, like you were saying, like it ended in a very, very, you know, sour manner. And, uh, you know, this is, what, 15 years later. I still look back on it very, very fondly because that was a magical season. And we magical don't Magical season. I we love that. Is, that is my, that's my favorite Mets team. 2006. Oh, I think I'm with you right there. I'm, I'm too young to remember 86. I was like three. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was that was the high watermark. They were absolutely delightful. And, you know, that game, there's a whole chapter in my book on that game. As you mentioned, thank you very much at the top. The book is partly dedicated to Andy Chavez because I love him so much. And I was there at that game. Um, and it was the greatest play I've ever witnessed live in my life and ever will witness live in my life. It is the greatest postseason catch ever, as far as I'm concerned. And the reason why I wrote a whole chapter about it is because the, the Metsy way that it ended is something that is so unique to us. I mean, having an all-time historic catch like that within an hour of an all-time gut-wrenching, humiliating defeat this is what I'm talking about when it comes to the Mets, right? If you look at game six in the 86 World Series, it was the same thing just in reverse. That time we got the good end of it. In 2006, we get the bad end of it. But it's always the Mets on, you know, those polarities. And, you know, I just thought there's something so Metsy about a moment like what happened with Andy Chavez that, was, that, that just thrills me every time I watch it being undone by something like that. And then, of course, you know, just, you know, I was writing that chapter in the winter of 2019 into early 2020. Do you happen to remember what happened at exactly that same period? 
Uh, that's when Carlos Beltran lost his job, isn't it? That, well, that's when Carlos Beltran got hired. Oh, okay. So. Six weeks as manager and then lost his job, which means I had to rewrite that goddamn chapter three times <laughs> because of Carlos Beltran. First, I wrote it as a story that effectively ends in 2006, and then we go on to the next chapter. Then I have to rewrite the chapter because now Carlos Beltran is our goddamn manager. And all of a sudden, there's this beautiful, redemptive narrative arc. And suddenly I'm opening my heart to Carlos Beltran again. And then, of course, metzily enough, six weeks later, I'm rewriting the chapter again, feeling stupid again. <laughs> and ruining that we've spent yet another winter wishing Carlos Beltran never existed, right? And so even within the writing of that chapter itself, it was like the experience, even for me internally in my own universe was Metsy to the core. Oh yeah. And just the, um, the, the, the Metsiness of that team getting their best hitter at the plate with the bases loaded with two outs in the bottom of the ninth of the game seven of the NLCS and, and things unfolding as they did. There's nothing Mets here. And you could look at so many, and you did in the book, you could look at so many different instances. You know, the early, the best team money could buy in the 90s. Roberto, yeah. Roberto freaking Alomar. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can go down the list, and it's more often than not, it's self-inflicted, which hopefully, I guess, under new management, that's going to change. And so far, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You would hope, but, you know, how does this keep on? How did it keep on happening for so long in, in, in almost every aspect? Well, some of this is the cosmos, right? Because one of the things that was interesting to me as I would look deeper into all of these stories is that in almost every case, they would have one or two turns of the screw even more crazy than you thought, right? Like, let me just give you one example. Right. Most Mets fans know the, the famous Nolan Ryan for Jim for trade. Right. Famous. Famously goes awry. OK. Now, I will argue till I'm blue in the face that it was right to trade Nolan Ryan. And I, I think I'm pretty firm on that. Like, I think if you talk to any honest baseball person about that moment, it was, the, it was the right strategic decision to trade Nolan Ryan. He was the right pitcher to trade. The mistake was getting useless, broken down, shortstop. Jim Fergosi <laughs> immediately moving him to third base as like a veteran 30 year old. And of course he breaks his thumb fielding a hard ground or trying to learn how to play third base. Perfectly messy, right? It's already a perfectly messy story, you know, finished, done. What I didn't realize is that five years later, Jim Fergosi returned to the California angels as their young upstart manager and managed Nolan Ryan to his only postseason appearance in California. I didn't know that. And there were, that's like an extra messy little twist, right? And the other big one, I guess I didn't know, and maybe you know this, and maybe, you know, Whitey Herzog was the demon devil incarnate. He was Voldemort of my childhood, right? Whatever, maybe Bobby Cox is that for you or Chipper Jones. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Most people I think of your generation hate the Braves with the passion that I actually reserve for the Cardinals because they were my nemesis when I was a boy and you never forget your first nemesis, right? Right. Um, and so Whitey Herzog, the manager of the Cardinals, the white rat manager of the Cardinals, his actual nickname, white rat. Yeah. Um, and I hated him <laughs> and I hated him. And cause I think on deep down, I knew that he was a genius and a better manager. Um, and I'm researching this book and maybe Mets fans know this, but Whitey Herzog groomed every great Met arm of the 60s, including Tom Seaver, which if you're me researching this book, having grown up hating, despising Whitey Herzog, it's like finding out that Darth Vader was your father. Like it really was. It was. He was an integral part of the. Um of the, I guess, the scouting or front office? Integral part of the scouting team. And maybe yeah. this was something that I should have. I thought I was pretty good on Mets history. Maybe I just missed this somehow. But, and, you know, I think maybe I knew he was with the team in some kind of vague way and maybe blocked that out. 
but I definitely didn't know he was the guy that should have been managing the 70s teams. After Gil Hodges died, he was the guy who should have gotten the job. In fact, he left the Mets organization because they picked Yogi Berra instead, right? <laughs> and I didn't know that. And he left because the Mets blue blood prick of a chairman of the board, M. Donald Grant, just didn't like Whitey Herzog and Whitey Herzog didn't like him. I mean, go figure, like a guy with a red wine collection didn't like someone nicknamed the, right, the white rat, right? <laughs> they just didn't like each other. And Whitey Herzog's gone and he, you know, takes the Royals to the World Series and then he wins the World Series with the Cardinals. Um, and then, you know, I find out that he's my dad. And, but, you know, things like this happen, you know, it, well, that was a revelation for me, but those stories are all, all over the Mets. And, you know, like literally you could take almost every great Metsy story you think, you know, and I could probably be here and be like, oh, wait, there's five things you don't know about it. Like and the Bobby Bonilla thing is probably the most bountiful of all of those. Oh, sure. I mean, and it's funny. I feel like I'm in the minority that actually thinks that the Bobby Bonilla, as much as it's ridiculed, that was actually kind of a halfway smart move for the organization. It was more than halfway. It was whole way smart. It really whole was. Way. It was one of the most successful trades or deals, I guess, in the franchise's history. It immediately freed up the money to sign Mike Hampton, which was the thing the Mets needed to put them over the top. He won the MVP award in the NLCS the very next year. He went to the World Series. He leaves because he prefers Denver's public schools. Oh, God, I love that. Um, it's the only reason to go to pitch in Colorado, right, is the public schools. You got to have a reason. Um, and we get the pick that becomes David Wright. We get the compensatory pick that becomes David Wright. There is no possible way that getting rid of a guy and deferring his salary could pay off better than that, especially since deferring the salary is kind of routine now. It's a perfectly normal thing. The reason why the Bobby Bonilla deal is the Bobby Bonilla deal is first, obviously, because we hate Bobby Bonilla. So there's this sort of grifter and Mark component to the whole thing, right? You don't root for two clowns ripping each other off. You just laugh at them, right? And that's, I think, the part of it. That's the other part of it, right? Is the, the checks kick in in 2011, right? When we didn't know that the Wilpons even had $1.2 million, let alone write a check to, to Bobby Bonilla, right? <laughs> that's why I feel like this momentum has taken over is not so much the deal itself, but who the players were when it kicked in. It's one of those things where like the farce is the, the farce is the characters, not the plot, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a good line. Yeah, I should have used it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in the book. Oh, well, sorry. I hope you don't read it expecting it. <laughs> Damn good line. But like, you know, um, Sure. And it worked out good for everyone. But Benia turned, what, like uh, six million into 30, something like that. And uh, yeah. And by the way, if you do the math, it's kind of a wash. If he if he had the six million up front and invested it. Well. Yeah, it's it's it, maybe he comes out ahead, maybe not. But it's not like he killed the Mets, I think. You know, to me, one of the things that I wanted to do in the book, and I don't know the degree to which you're going to follow me this far down the road, is that I just I just think, you know, we got to take a look at guys like Bobby Bonilla through fresh eyes. We just have to. It's 2021. The yeah. way Bobby Bonilla was received, welcomed, treated from the moment he arrived in New York has to factor into the has to factor into the narrative story that we tell about him because we also need to acknowledge one or two other things about Bobby Mania, which is that we're the only ones who feel this way about him. <laughs> one, two, Bobby Bonilla is still in baseball. He works for the players union. He's not playing golf. He's not retired and laughing at us. He's still in baseball. And to me, there's something important about that, especially since he's doing it on behalf of players. He's fighting for players in the players union. And I, I just think that he had two horrific years with us. And then his numbers actually got really good, by the way. Um, and then he immediately rebounded to Bobby Binia form as soon as he went to Baltimore. 
Um, by the way, that's the other thing people forget. We traded back for Bobby Bonilla. It was the second Bobby Bonilla tour of duty that this happened on. Like we yeah. let him go. How messy is that, right? Speaking of things that we forget and that turn out to be a messier turn than you realize, we traded for Bobby Bonilla again. Oh yeah. Do people know that? Do people know that? Yeah. Do most people remember that? Sure. Well, you know, that 92, 93 time, uh, that, that era, you know, that was, I was nine, 10 years old. That was a very, very exciting time. I mean, you got Eddie Murray coming in. You got Bobby Vanilla coming in. You got Brett Saberhagen coming in. Oh, uh, no, I, I totally, I'm, I assume everybody remembers that. What I, yeah. what I wonder is, I, I think people probably assume that what we come to know as Bobby Vanilla Day began with the end of that first tour of duty, which it did not. It did not. We, he, he, we, we just, he just, we just traded him to Baltimore and time went on for three or four more years. Yeah. Bobby Benilla came back to the Mets. And then they bought him out. And then they bought him out. Yep. And that's the part that I think people don't realize. I think that people assume that Bobby Benilla was the logical, Bobby Benilla day and the buyout was the logical reaction to a signing gone wrong. Well, no. The logical reaction to a sign gone wrong is to trade the guy away, which is what we did in 1995. The yeah. illogical thing to do is to bring him back in the winter of 98. But that's what the Mets did. And then they made him leave. And, and that strikes me as that's where the Mets really show out, right? I mean, first of all, I just think the whole saga is already pretty special. But, you know, from a distance... Maybe this, maybe that is a little bit of our New York egocentrism because the reality is free agents signings go bad all the time and teams fall out with teams all the time and there's bad blood all the time. And even these kinds of deals, which, you know, these kinds of annuity style deals, they, they're commonplace now. They weren't, Daryl Strawberry has one from the Mets. Brett Saberhagen has one from the Mets. They're not that unusual, but they made it make it work. Yeah, it's just a it's a way to do business. And we just kind of the, the, it's just like the, the, the rich history is so much better than the shallow version. Why not dive in? You know what I mean? It's just like you think you already have the fun story. It just gets so much more fun. And that's what that's what I learned going deeper and deeper and deeper is you just keep going. Oh, my God, I can't believe there's more. Because there's always more. There's always more. That's what I kept saying to my wife as I was writing the book. There's always more. Now, I, I was going to ask you about like the whole process of writing the book. Now, how does that, as you're finding more and more and more, is it just a continuous, like a perpetual puzzle that you're kind of putting together as you're gaining more information? No one should ever write a book like this. <laughs> like... It, it was total chaos, total chaos. I mean, I just sat down and started at the beginning and uh, it was just, it was, it was a disaster. Um, but, you know, part of it is I've been a journalist for 20 years. Um, and so part of it is not so much plunging yourself into everything there is, although there's certainly that. It's, it's more just having a developed understanding or a developed sense of what you're looking for mm -hmm. and knowing, having a clear sense of the story you want to tell and how that's different from the ones that everybody else is trying to tell or has told in the past. And that was actually a little easy, right? Because I wasn't writing about the miracle 69 season. I wasn't writing about the 86 juggernaut season. I was writing about the stuff that I found delightful and colorful and the most emblematic of who we are, but, but also the stuff that no one was ever really writing about, right? Because usually teams and fans of a team want to read about the wins, the, the, the championships. And for Mets fans, I just feel like our identity is so much broader and richer than that. I mean, look at all the stand-up comics. We have the best stand-up comic lineup of any sports franchise, not just baseball, right? I mean, you think about, we have a murderer's row of stand-up comics who root for the Mets. That's not an accident. 
You know what I mean? That's, that's not an accident. You, you have to have a great sense of humor to do this. And so when I'm going through and looking for the reporting, I'm not looking for, you know, the, the, the Tom Seaver stat that reaffirms the dominance that you already know, unless it's like really mind blowing. By the way, can I give you one mind blowing Tom Seaver stat from 1969? Please. Tom Seaver in 15 at bats with the bases loaded against him in 1969 gave up one single. <laughs> I, I just, I often stop and think about hitters going one for 15 with one single with the bases loaded against him. That is just mesmerizing to me. That is true, true, true dominance as far as I can tell. I, 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 anyway, but unless it's something like that or the Mets, sorry, another one. In 1974, the Mets lost both games of a doubleheader 11 times, <laughs> which you know, is a record that will never be broken because there will never be 11 doubleheaders in a season again, um, let alone 15 or whatever they played. Like those statistics, I really like. But for the most part, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm, I'm looking for colorful stories or, you know, names and characters and um, anecdotes, um, but also for a little bit more of what's surrounding the game and getting into the characters a little bit more and writing about Mackie Sasser and writing about, you know, Cleon Jones and the year that they fired Mr. Met and replaced him with a mule, right? Those are the stories that I wanted to tell because the 69 and 86 stories have, have mostly been told. Well, the, and those are the stories that need to be told in order to really fully absorb the good stories. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, you gotta know, know where you come from. <laughs> you know, like, look, if I'm trying to, you know, when I'm talking about stories of losing, I think people probably picture, okay, well, we lost this game to the Braves and then we lost this game to the Cardinals. Well, no, there's a chapter about the, the, the like I said, there's a chapter about 1979 when the late owner's granddaughters thought it would be a good idea to fire Mr. Met, loving father and husband, <laughs> and replace him with a mule named Metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, because the mule was meant to symbolize grit, determination, and a lack of flash. Nobody and put together that it was an ass. Nobody put together that it was an ass, <laughs> or, that, or that a mule is effectively a slave, right? It's, it's the low, and also has no future because mules don't reproduce, right? All of these things are metaphors that are not good for a baseball team. And there's also the practical reality, you know, mules poop. And they had to poop in center fields. The poor grounds crew had to take care of it. And they require care and feeding and shelter. Mr. Matt goes, you know, works at, starts his day at four, goes home at 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. And if he poops in center field, you can fire Mr. Matt. Right? <laughs> so like this immediately blows up, but that's, there's a chapter about that because that's a kind of losing, right? That's a, you know, my story about the 86 Mets is sort of begins with them winning because to me, the Metsy part, the true Mets isn't the 86 Mets. That team was the juggernaut. They're, they're the exceptional team. They're the exception that proves the rule. They're the one juggernaut we've ever had. The Mets were everything that came after Right. Yeah. Like the, the Mets were, you know, Dwight Gooden is in now is it's 87 and it's April 87 and Dwight Gooden's in rehab. Yeah. And, you know, then Bob Ojeda's clipping off his finger. Right. Yep. Kevin Mitchell is cutting off the heads of cats. Allegedly. Down. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> not really mounted a very firm denial. Um, he should come out stronger in denial of this, Kevin, please. Um, uh, you know what I mean? Like it's, we were already a hell of a ball player. I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. An amazing ball player. And you know, okay, here's a fun thing that I learned because, you know, Kevin Mitchell in my memory is just a, just a monstrous player, ferocious player becomes an MVP 
as course, as soon as we get rid of them. Um, 511, 180. You know, in my head, I'm picturing Kevin Mitchell as 6'3", 250. And yeah. he wasn't. He was kind of a small guy. Yeah, and he, played, he played beyond that size. He played beyond that. Kevin, Kevin uh, Gary Carter called him world because he could <laughs> do anything. Because he could do anything. He could play six positions. He could play shortstop. And so, of course, the Mets traded him because they were worried that he – was going to be a bad influence on Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden rather than the other way around. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's characters like Kevin Mitchell or George Foster. You, you must've missed George Foster, right? You missed. Oh no, but I'm, I'm well-versed in the, in yeah. the, you know, and see George Foster is another guy that like, you know, in my childhood, I was just, you know, I started watching baseball in 1984. So George Foster was, all I heard about George Foster was he was this legendary hitter who, for all I could tell, kept striking out. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm eight, nine years old. I'm like, what is it with this guy? Why does everybody think he's so good? All he does is strike out. And now, you know, again, I mean, I obviously learned who George Foster was much more recently than this, but some of the things I didn't know about George Foster was that he was the master of the side hustle, even Mm -hmm. though he was by far the richest Met in franchise history that didn't stop him from peddling fake polos <laughs> in the visitor's locker room, like literally sending bat boys over to the visitor's locker room to sell his fake polos. They had three hind legs. Um, <laughs> you know, George Foster is the, is the guy responsible for get Metsmerized, which was our awful knockoff of the Super Bowl shuffle. So awful that the Mets basically made another song um, in order to, over, you know, basically erase the yeah. humiliation of George Foster's single. Let's um, go, Mets go. Let's go, Mets go. Which, you know, not, you know. It's snappy. It's snappy. Not the worst. I mean, look, <laughs> it, it is a massive improvement over Get Metsmerized, which if you're, you know, if your listeners haven't heard Get Metsmerized, they really should treat themselves. Like it's it's right there on YouTube. If you want to hear Raphael Santana spit rhymes. Yeah. And, and by the way, you do. Trust me, you do. Oh, um, Go, go check it out. Um, George Foster kicks things off. His, his, his bars are so bad. <laughs> so bad. I mean, even allowing for the fact that this is 1984 and we should have low expectations for verses. It's so bad. And <laughs> this au pair sings on the single. So like, um, and by the way, they traded him. Like they traded him before the single even had a chance to come out. So, um, well- they traded him because that brawl in Cincinnati, I believe. It was the brawl was, in Cincinnati. Yeah. Was it Cincinnati or LA? And he just sat on the bench. He just sat on the bench. Well, he yeah. sat in Cincinnati. That's why he sat on the bench. That, oh, right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. And he was gone like that week. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, he came in warning the planes out of LaGuardia against flying too low. <laughs> he was going to hit so many home runs. We paid him $10 million. And then they exiled him and it didn't matter because, you know, Lenny Dykstra took over. Um, Kevin Mitchell took over. And that was that. Yeah. Goodbye. They, they, they a little bit stronger and addition by subtraction is something that, you know, we've seen happen a million times. But, you know, like, you know, I think one of the points here, right, is that we all know about what happens once George Foster goes, right? We, you know, that becomes the launching pad. 85 becomes 86, right? And then the mm-hmm. Mets you know, go on the run that if we had had today's, not just playoff rules, even if we had just had today's alignment, the Mets still would have won five straight NL Easts. Same record. If we just had the same alignment, they would have won five straight NL Easts, right? But okay. But, you know, the George Foster era in New York, let's say, you know, that moment between 1979 with Dave Kingman and into the early 80s with George, you know, those are just as many years as the five that came after it. That is just as much a Mets experience for Gary Cohen, right? Those were his formative teams. Jimmy Kimmel, those were a lot of his formative teams, right? Like if you're thinking about a lot of these comics that we're talking about, a lot of them grew up on Brant's tomb. Yeah. And so you can't just talk about the Mets and tell the 86 story. Cause it's just not complete. Right. Yeah. It's no more complete than telling a Yankee story in which it's only last place finishes. Although I would love for someone to try. 
<laughs> hey, you know, the, the, the one leg to stand on in that argument is that the Yankees haven't won nearly as many as they have in the last, let's say, 40 years as they did in the first 80 years or ho- however many it was. I like to tell Yankee fans, um, if you're having trouble remembering what it's like to play in a World Series, I can answer all your questions. Just, you know, I just don't want you guys to I just don't want the Yankee fans to give up because, you know, you know how they talk about the Yankee way. You know, giving up wasn't the Yankee way. But hey, there's there's something to be said about actually going out and trying to win every year, which, you know, for a long time, or at least for the last decade or so, the Mets, you know, as a Mets fan, you were kind of looking across town like, damn, it must be nice to actually, uh, you know, root for a team that operates like they're in a New York market. But, hey, uh, under Steve Cohen, it seems like things are, are kind of picking up. Um, do you think that there's a sequel in the work? So many ways to win now that uh, the, yes. tides, the tides could be changing? I mean, it's going to take a while, right? I think we need to let a lot of we need to let a lot of time pass, right? But I see no evidence that Steve Cohen is going to usher in any kind of DNA change. That does not mean that we will not win games. We may even win a World Series. But to me, the evidence so far suggests that Steve Cohen is very much a Metsy owner. All of this tweeting about Francisco Lindor is making me very nervous. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what the intent was there. Um, yeah. The intent is he's fucking around and he's glib and I'm concerned. I'm just concerned. Let's, I'm just, I'm just, pride cometh before the fall. And this, this, this sets up like, I hate to plug it, but it's like, Steve Cohen, you need to read my book brother. Like this is, (laughs) you are tempting the gods right here. And, you know, I'm, 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 I'm worried about what they've got in store for us. If we, um, if we do things like throw tweets out there, I mean, come on, the celebrating the world series drill. Oh, that's what we doing. What? Oh, okay. Okay. You know, we're going to be seeing that footage one way or another in October. Oh, you know it's going to happen. The, the first time they lose three or four in a row, we're going to see that footage. But um, it, Trevor May uh, was talking about it. He's on the, the Chris Rose rotation on YouTube. Um, actually, Chris Rose was just on the show last week. But right. Trevor May was talking about it, and he was, you know, he's talking about um, you kind of have to visualize. I get it. And, and you know. I get it. I get the athlete. I also get the, um, the, the, the perception as well, though. <laughs> I, I get the athlete explanation and I believe it. I, I, I you know, the, the, the importance of, of visualization exercises and athletic achievement has been scientifically demonstrated. I'm not here to argue with that. Yeah. I'm just saying exercise a little bit more judgment next time. Tony Tarasco, you clearly <laughs> have not been with the Mets very long. Um, that's some brave shit right there. Right. Um, Oh, we're, we're bold. We're ready for that. Yeah. It's just, you know, I just, it just, I I enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong. It made me laugh, but it was, it was a Metsy laugh knowing that it's going to come back to haunt us. Right. Only the Mets, only the Mets would let that be. Only the Mets. Yeah. 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 Hey, hopefully it's all, we were laughing about it in October. Yeah. But you know what? I also think we're going to win the world series. So there's that too. So don't worry. I'm I'm with you, bro. Oh, I'm with you a hundred percent. Special times. It's it's possible for me to believe both of these things at once, right? So yeah, I I know Francisco Lindor is both going to be the MVP this season, and I worry for his physical safety, right? I can do both of these things at once, and that's how you that's what it is to be a Mets fan. Yeah, ah, yeah, you're pretty sure you summed it up pretty perfectly there. All right, well, uh, Devin, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Um, I really appreciate you having me. It's, it's I, I love talking like direct to. Um, Mets fans where we can really chop it up and get deep into it. Oh, this is great. And I think the first, you know, the first Metsian occurrence of the 21 season, 2021 season, uh, we'll have to get you back on to kind of discuss how this always seems to keep on happening. Just let's just hope it's not tomorrow. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Uh, Devin, where can everyone find you on social media? What's your your preferred place to to purchase the book for us to go out and Uh, buy the book? So Twitter, Devin Gordon X, that's D-E-V-I-N, Gordon X. Um, all the other Devin Gordon things were taken, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> on Instagram, I'm DevinGo913. Um, you know, 
I'm supposed to say buy the book at Amazon. My publisher would prefer that. And of course, if that's simplest, go ahead and do it. Um, but if there's a local bookstore that you like, uh, definitely support your local bookstore. That's, that's, that's option one for, for me. Oh, I just looked at the judges. That was a perfect answer, Devin. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I, it, it's, it, it happens to be the truth. There's the virtue of being truly and sincere. It is. Uh, off the air, we were talking about a local bookstore to, to the Metro New York area. And um, we were just kind of, you know, talking about how, how wonderful of a little shop it is. And everyone has one of those little shops in their, in their neighborhood. So uh, especially during these times, everyone. Yeah, yeah please uh, help them out. Please yeah. help them out. Definitely. Devin, again, thank you so much. Um, let's go Mets. And uh, really, uh, congratulations on just a wonderfully written, terrifically funny and uh, truly heartwarming for us Metsies masochists. Uh, piece of work. I appreciate that. Thanks, Tim. Let's go All Mets. Right. Let's go Mets. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. All, right. All right, everybody, you know where to find us. Simply Amazing. We'll be back on Friday with a new episode. And uh, yeah, let's go Mets.